Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber Breakfast. We're now in our 42nd episode of 2021. Yesterday, the Biden administration nominated acting FCC Chair Jessica Rosenworcel, whose term had expired, to a new term at the FCC. In addition, Gigi Som was nominated to fill the fifth seat on the FCC. For NTIA, the administration nominated Alan Davidson to run that agency. These nominations and anticipated confirmations are critical given the significant investment our country is making in its mission-critical fiber infrastructure. We congratulate each of them on their nominations, and we look forward to working with them to ensure that all Americans are connected as soon as possible to future-proof fiber broadband networks. We continue to receive letters from governors across the nation expressing interest in fiber broadband's workforce Uh, development program. It's clear that these governors understand the importance of investing in fiber broadband for their critical infrastructure. And they're seeking the help, seeking our help in training fiber optic technician workforce that their states desperately need. Speaking of broadband infrastructure, the speaker is working to get the bill, which includes 65 billion for broadband, to the floor for a vote as early as today. Hopefully members will feel that negotiations on the reconciliation package have progressed far enough that they'll be willing to move forward with the infrastructure bill. So we'll continue to watch this very closely. On November 4th, which is next Thursday, Give Me Fiber Day is coming up. We'll be announcing the winner of the Dr. Charles Ko Award for Community Broadband. Dr. Charles Ko, regarded by many as the father of fiber optics, revolutionized the transmission of data and laid the foundation for fiber connectivity around the world. This Fiber Broadband Association Award recognizes individuals, organizations, or companies that honor Dr. Kao's innovation and connect communities with fiber optic technology. So hope you all join us next Thursday, February 4th, between 2 and 4 p.m. Eastern with a fiber-focused tweets using the hashtag GiveMeFBA. So let's move to this morning's Fiber for Breakfast session. You know, last week we met with Inghouse, who shared with us how fiber planning and design has gone mobile. Today we'll be discussing from best practices to next practicing practices, breaking new ground in damage prevention with Sarah Magruder-Lyle with the Common Ground Alliance. This is a critical topic for anyone in our audience that's involved with fiber deployment. Sarah Magruder-Lyle is the president and CEO of the Common Ground Alliance an organization dedicated to protecting underground utility assets and the people who dig near them through the industry collaboration and the promotion of effective damage prevention practices. Sarah was appointed by the Secretary of Transportation to the Department of Liquid Pipe Advisory Committee, which provides guidance to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration on regulations affecting pipeline safety standards in March of 2019. Sarah has an extensive background in industry policy government relations, and strategic outreach. She's a graduate of the Catholic University American Columbia School of Law in DC and received her undergraduate degree from Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. So welcome, Sarah. 
Great. Thanks so much, Gary. I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for joining us. Um, look forward to um, having a, a great conversation. Fantastic. And for our audience, please type your questions as you go. We'll get to our Q&A at the conclusion of the presentation. With that, I'll turn mm -hmm. it over to Sam. So um, first, um, I want to thank everybody for being here. And as Gary mentioned, the Common Ground Alliance is, is you know, the nonprofit association that is dedicated to protecting underground infrastructure. And as you will see, um, we have 16 stakeholders at the table, and that includes telecom, which includes um, those of you in, in the fiber industry. Um, our main goal is to educate and uh, use our data that we collect to inform and analyze what's happening in the damage prevention industry and how we can help reduce damages and then stakeholder engagement. So making sure that all 16 stakeholder groups are involved in the process. Next slide, please. <clears throat> and so with that, I wanna give you a little bit of background about um, CGA. So certainly um, the 811 program um, has been, you know, what, what CGA is known for, right? No, it's below, call before you dig. So the one call centers belong to us, along with everybody who ha also has underground infrastructure, like those of you on the phone. So um, the Common Ground Alliance was actually formed around a initial best practices study about 20 years ago. And so that group, uh, 160 people, um, got together and put together a set of best practices and decided they did not want that to just sit on a shelf um, and gather dust. It had been commissioned by the Department of Transportation because we were having a serious issue in this country with constantly hitting pipelines. So with that, the Common Ground Alliance was born. We uh, just recently published our 18th version um, the other document um, that is very much looks to that, that we produce is the DIRT report. That is the damage information reporting tool. And that is the only set of data that collects um, damages and near misses from all stakeholder groups. Um, so this year is our 17th annual report, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that on the next slide. If you look at this, you'll see that there, there's a pretty, a third, a third, a third divide on who is actually causing damages. So root cause group is who is actually causing the issue, right? So you see about a third with a no locate request, uh, a third with excavation practices, and then locating practices. The only binary one on here is no locate request. That means you either did or you did not call 811. So that is something that we all together can really address is how do we, what, what do we do to make sure that before our contractors are, you know, getting in there and putting a shovel in the ground that they're calling to make sure they don't hit your own stuff or somebody else's. Now, I wanna talk a little bit specifically, specifically about telecommunication. If you could please, yeah, there we go, one more. If you look at this, so this is damages caused by root cause group. So this is telecommunications. If you look at that number, it, it, it's a significant one, right? And the vast amount of those are coming from no locate requests. That means that um, your stuff is being damaged, your assets are being damaged because, <clears throat> excuse me, there was no locate, okay? And so it's really important to look at that because what's behind you, right, is oil and gas. And so when we think about that, also this is what is being damaged when everything's being worked on. You're also the most damaged facility, right? Um, and significantly more than natural gas. And so we want to think about what 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 is causing this to happen? Why why is telecom at the front here? Next slide, please. 
and this is by work, work performed. So this means that when you're working on telecom, telecom is also getting hit, okay? And so the summary of all of those, and I know I went through those dirt slides very quickly. You can look at all of that information on our website. You can look at dirt, you can slice and dice it by state, by stakeholder group, by region. And so I invite all of you to go take a look at that. But what I really wanna focus on is the telecommunications industry is one of the least reporting, right? They do not report their dirt data. So they do not submit data when there's a damage or an air incident. So we don't have the, the greatest data around your particular stakeholder group. But what we do have tells us this, you're the most damaged facility type, right? And when you're working on your own um, infrastructure, you're also damaging your own infrastructure the most, right? So when somebody is working on telecom, they are also damaging telecom, right? And it's the second greatest number of damages on all facilities. So when we're working on telecom, you're causing the second greatest number of damages across all facilities. And I'm sure, and unfortunately, there have been stories and some unfortunate ones where telecom has hit a gas line and there has been an explosion. For instance, um, I guess that was last year, maybe two years ago now, as we all know, last year was a bit of a blur. Um, a Verizon subcontractor hit a line in San Francisco and there was a huge explosion and by the grace of God, nobody died, right? But they were putting in fiber, right? And so we have to think about the difference in what, you know, when we think of traditional telecom, like old school, right? That's copper. And there was a culture around, it was much cheaper to hit it. And just, if it got hit, we fixed it, right? Now, you know, the, every every foot of fiber you guys put in the ground is, is, is really expensive, right? And so there's a culture change that has to happen. You know, the, the guys in oil and gas and gals in oil and gas, you know, it, it's the most heavily regulated industry, right? They have to report their information to FEMSA. They have to, you know, FERC looks at their stuff. There's a whole system there that really stays on them about their damages and near near incidents. And as fiber continues to, you know, increase its role in true critical infrastructure, we have to think about that. And so, um, you know, we really have to think about how do we get our um, employees, our excavators, our locators, those who are doing damage prevention to really work to change the culture around how we are operating. With that, um, a few years ago, we had a discussion with uh, the leaders of several of the trade associations that represent the 16 stakeholder groups, as well as some companies about well, what can we do generally to, to help reduce damages. Over the last five years, the trend has been going in the wrong direction. Um, last year, it was flat, if you will, but I'm, I, you know, again, last year was a bit of a, a challenge. But if we keep doing what we're doing, right, we can't expect to have a different outcome. And so the board decided to look at what is actually going on. Why, why are we not able to change, you know, the trajectory here? And so um, the next practices initiative was born. And so the idea was how do we find ways to advance innovative solutions, uh, advance technology? Because when we talk about best practices that I mentioned earlier, the best practices are the entire damage prevention process from you know design to you know what happens if there's an incident but those have to be um, processes that are in place 
that are voted on by consensus that everybody agrees is the best practice for right now. But we need to get to what's going to be the best practice later. How do we push into the future? So as we looked at these issues, we found that as we talked about all the challenges we see, that there are three challenges that were really, you know, affecting lots of the issues we were seeing, lots of the root causes across the board. Facilities not marked accurately and on time, excavator errors in the field, and effective and consistent use of 811. A lot of the challenge around the way we've been addressing these damages is we would say, well, the excavator hit it, it's their fault. Well, the excavator is always going to be the cause of the damage, but that doesn't mean it's their fault. And so when we looked at this, we talked about, well, th there are some systemic challenges here. Um, for instance, the locating industry is the only industry that has to, they, you can say to them, you either have to mark 10, 10 lines today or a thousand lines today, and they're still expected to get it done within the regulated time of that state, right? And, and there's no safety valve in a lot of states for that. And so that's causing a challenge and it's also causing a decrease in confidence by the excavators for the process because they're not confident that, they're, that things are gonna get marked before they need to work. So one of the interesting things that happens then is the excavator says, I'm not confident that job site is gonna get marked. So I'm gonna call in four more job sites. I have to have some place to put my crew. We have to work. Well. It was kind of the aha moment when we were talking about this, which is, well, you're actually contributing to the problem. You're over notifying. You're causing the locator to try desperately to mark even more lines than he needs to. So that is a systemic challenge that we have to address, right? But those also lead to all the other challenges. Excavator errors in the field. They walk out there. They see some marks. Maybe not all the marks are there. They start work. They start working and they hit something. The excavator can do everything he's supposed to do and still hit a line. And so we have to reduce the opportunities in the system for that to happen. We have to reduce those risks. So the systemic opportunities that the Next Practices Advisory Committee um, identified were increasing implementation of effective electronic white lining, pursuing an accurate and accessible GIS-based mapping system, utilizing technology and software to account for variability in demand, and contractually incentivizing adherence to best practices and address incidents with effective enforcement mechanisms. And so with that, um, we, uh, we did the initial report, which outlined those, and just recently at our, um, our, our recent uh, conference, which, wow, two weeks ago now, um, we talked about what we had discovered. And so what we did is we had asked companies to tell, what are you doing to try to move the needle? What are the interesting things that you're doing and innovative ideas that you have that you are using to try to push the needle? Because we don't, we do not have a forum to have those discussions. So we have um, several case studies for each of the four opportunities I identified. And we would certainly love if any of um, the organizations that are on the phone here um, have any interesting or innovative processes, communications, contractual, you know, language they're using to help move the needle. Um, we'd love to have that because next practices is not just a one and done. This is going to be, you know, a constant of we're looking to see what's next. So, for instance, Utilisource they went through and they mapped an entire city as they were laying fiber. 
and it cut their cost down significantly. Oh, back up, sorry, not, not in this deck, I apologize. So Southwest Gas is really using value proposition language in their contracts. You know, a lot of the contracts that operators are using say, you know, it, it's a penalty. It's not a reward for doing the right thing. And what we're seeing is through a lot of these case studies, if we reward the right behavior on the front end, if we spend a little more and invest a little more on the front end, the ROI on the back end is significantly more. And so part of it is, particularly with the fiber broadband industry, is we can't just look for the, the, the lowest you know, cost locator up front. And particularly because your assets are now you know, increasing in value for you as a company, and frankly, for the communities in which you operate, we have to think about what, what that initial investment up front, how that pays off on the back end because you haven't damaged your own stuff. You haven't caused, you know, a damage to a gas line. And so we have to really, you know, reset how we think about damage prevention in total. And if you're interested, next slide, please. I will go on to it now. Um, we will be in Anaheim uh, continuing the conversation we just had a couple weeks ago um, on next practices and all kinds of of other interesting damage prevention topics. So um, I invite you to join us and certainly am happy to take questions. Tara, thank you so much. You know, I was in uh, that conference in Colorado this summer and, uh, you know, one of the speakers warned us if we were going to go hike out in the wilderness, then in our pack we should carry a piece of fiber with us because um, if we get lost, just bury that in the ground and a backhoe would show up. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of yeah. um, funny in that, or too true to be funny, I guess. But um, it, this is a serious issue with, you know, uh, you said there's 128,000 incidents in telecom. What, you know, what is that from a dollar value? Well, and, and that's a great question. So because we don't have, and, and frankly, this is where your your stakeholder group can increase the awareness around the, the damages and, and help us educate the other stakeholders about these issues because while you are being damaged the most, other people are damaging your stuff too, right? And, and frankly, we only have a few telecom fiber players at the table right now. And so we're, we're very happy, Gary, that um, you and your team have engaged with us. Um, but, you know, it, it can be really significant. One of the, you know, issues we had here is um, last last semester um, a backhoe hit a line in um, in Arlington and cut off virtual school to the entire Arlington County District as if parents in Arlington needed another reason to have their kids running around wild in their house during school uh, and you know we say that and, and you know one of our board members used to say you you don't want to be the person that causes the issue on Super Bowl day in your neighborhood right um, and, and a lot of those are, you know, generally when we think of fiber, we don't think of the, like the, the critical hits. You've cut off to a 911. You've hit, you know, communication to a hospital or the police station. And, and those are things that we really have to think about because, you know, um, I have actually been on a big dig. Um, I went with the Verizon team when they were in Boston, and I'm sure they're still doing work there, but I actually went in and looked at the difference in the fiber and they were showing me all the different things. 
you know, the, the amount of information that the, you're carrying in a fiber line now is so significantly larger than what it used to be. You know, we have to, you know, again, level set what we think about what, what a critical asset is, right? And, and that is running all kinds of things that we depend on every day. So I, that's my really long way of telling you, I don't know the exact cost of what that is, but I bet you have some very smart people on this call that can do a back of the envelope about how much. Plus, it's not just the asset. Um, when you think about ES&G you know, policies, and that's something that all companies are, are being asked to evaluate, every time you have a damage, you have to roll a truck right? If you hit a gas line, then you're rolling emergency police. Somebody has to mark off the street. You know, businesses are, you know, uh, you know, have to shut down for the day. Communities don't have, you know, if it's, if it's winter, then somebody has to set up a shelter because they don't have heat. And so there's the cost of this is pretty tremendous. So in um, our last DIRT report, so not this one, but the one before, we do a societal cost evaluation every other year. Um, damages cost the communities across the country 30 billion with a B. 30 yep, billion. No doubt. Yep. And well, that just is the time and you know, opportunity costs. We got a ton of questions here. Well, let me just start okay. with um, records and unlocatable fiber has to be a driver behind many of these uh, damages. I mean, you're not sure how to overcome those root causes. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And, and so part of the issue is if you think about the world we live in, um, you know, at, at some point we just have to say we're going to map it, right? And, and mapping is, you know, you know, the 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 operator has to have good records, right? And and that is a challenge. It is absolutely a challenge. But again, the case study that we looked at in Next Practices shows it can be done, right? If we're committed to making the investment up front for the long-term benefit of all the industries, we can do this and significantly reduce damages. I mean, considering the, you know, GIS, GPS, you know, ground penetrating, um, you know, technology we have, um, if we're not mapping it, it's our own fault. What about, so uh, this is from my good buddy, Greg from Kentucky. Our state underground okay. protection act, can you hear me? I did. Our I state said, underground okay. Oh, yes. Um, uh, there's another story I have to tell you after the call, but um, our okay. state underground protection act does not reflect best practices and it's getting worse to the laws being designed primarily by corporate lobbyists. In your opinion, what's the best way to educate state legislators to best, um, you know, and on best and next practices? So part of the challenge is, so, so we're at C3, so we don't lobby, but we can educate. And we have been making a push to get out there and educate. And I am, you know, just, I am happy to go talk to whomever about these issues, because certainly at the state level, if we don't make it an issue, it's not going to be an issue, right? If we don't say this, and, and part of the challenge is we also have to, you know, um, some, sometimes specific stakeholder groups who have lobbyists on the ground, right? They, they're lobbying for a short-term benefit for their industry, not the long-term benefit. And part of that is getting to leadership and saying, you can't just think about the cost right here, right? At, at, at the short end. We have to think about it all the way through the process. Um, and, and so it is a challenge. A lot of states do look at best practices. 
um, for their um, legislation. Um, I don't, I would recommend talking to the 811 call center where you are um, and seeing if they can help. And I'm also happy to talk more specifically about your state offline if that's helpful. No, that'd be great. Uh, what about enforcements on both sides? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so one thing we've seen is states that have less exemptions and they have effective enforcement rules that are actually, you know, that we actually use have the least amount of damages. Enforcement laws are only, you know, useful, right, that if, if they're enforced. So it can't just be a cost of doing business. And so we, you know, there, there is, as we all, those of you on the phone know you're running businesses, there is a cost that is a deterrent and there's a cost that's a cost of doing business. And in order to weed out the bad apples, we it can't just be the cost of doing business, but states that have fair and effective enforcement and have uh, less exemptions have a better damage prevention rate. Hey, Sarah, can you explain uh, electronic whitelining? I can, and there's a whole section about it in the next practices initiative. So um, this is, is really specific to how the, the contractor identifies what he needs to have marked, right? And so we're at this interesting place where, you know, certainly the white paint on the ground is, is still necessary, but you can use on your phone or iPad or, or whatever, you know, apparatus you're using out there where you can draw out specifically what needs to be marked. And so, for instance, if you look in the next practices report, we have a great um, uh, discussion about there's a street that needs to have three utility poles replaced, right? And so if we white line, we know we have to do the circular area around each pole on the street. And you can electronically white line that so you know. In a traditional way, if we're calling in, the excavator is gonna call in and say, I need to go from this side of the street to that side of the street, all the way down to X. And then you have a huge area which has to be marked, which is not efficient for the contractor, not efficient for the locator. And that means that the operator is, is also paying more for a locate that isn't necessary because if we could electronically white line it, we can narrow that down specifically so everybody can see exactly what needs to be marked. And so um, the technology is there. Um, we just have to continue to, you know, uh, you know, implement it. Um, and some places are, it's a slow process, but that's what it is. Hey, Sarah, since we're really low on time, maybe I can rapid fire these, but um, sure. I thought this was really interesting. So that the conversations about ex excavation centered discussion, but the, the commenter here is saying, for some reason, squirrels love fiber. Is there, uh, some active exploring on critter guarding. <laughs> um, that one I'm not aware of. Um, I'm not aware of that. But I'll I'm take sure that up with our deployment specialist. Also, what role do you see artificial intelligence in the future for locating uh, best practices? We we absolutely had um, some AI companies that were at our conference last week, and there is a lot of opportunity there. Um, to, to integrate that technology into locating, into the actual excavation, into ensuring safety. Um, it, it is going to continue to uh, increase, uh, absolutely. Well, listen, there's some more questions, but hopefully you can answer those offline. 
So Sarah, yeah. thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and insights with our audience. And uh, hopefully uh, Fire Broadband Association can be a good partner and work with our deployment specialist working group to um, help on this. Uh, next week, we will be discussing 100% fiber optic network access is taking Ponca City by storm with David Williams of Ponca City, a member of the Fiber Broadband Association's public officials working group as he discusses the phases of his town's project and the financial realities and share specific insights into the decision-making process of what has been um, learned mm -hmm. along the way. So you're not gonna wanna miss that. So thanks again for joining us and we look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. Thanks everyone.